Hello and welcome to episode 1436 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Nick Rowley, reporting live from the desert, and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I am doing well. How are you? I'm preparing to feel some feelings. We're yeah. recording this on Thursday, and Felix is <laughs> making his final start as a Mariner, and I'm prepared Maybe. to cry. You never yeah. know. <laughs> you never know, but I'm prepared to have some feelings about it. Yeah. So you're at the Arizona Fall League, which I will ask you about, but what does that mean for your Felix viewing situation? How are you going to take in this game? Well, oddly enough, right before we started recording, it started raining <laughs> here. <laughs> uh, you're so, sure you're in Arizona? Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's been some very dramatic weather. I I would feel bad about bringing rain to the desert, but everyone down here seems very appreciative to get the moisture, which I suppose is unsurprising. So I think that I will likely watch this game on my laptop in my Airbnb and resume mm-hmm. Fall League action tomorrow evening uh, so that I can finish finish writing a piece about it for Fangrass tomorrow. So that's the Maybe plan. Maybe with a glass of wine, some sort of sedative, just in case things get... <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know what things will get like. True to, true to Seattle form, I, at the local natural food market here in Scottsdale, mm-hmm. purchased a kind of high ABV uh, IPA. Okay. <laughs> so I will uh, be having one of those, I imagine. Yeah, I guess you have to write, so you probably yeah. <laughs> have to keep it to one of those. Otherwise, yes. <laughs> you could drown your sorrows. <laughs> but... Yeah, I think... Uh, <laughs> You know, it's one of those things where they do say that sometimes writing tipsy is fine if you edit sober, but since I end up doing the editing, <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, I'm going to need <laughs> There's to... no safety net unless yeah, Dylan to... Higgins is, can, can edit sober, but he'll yes. be editing this podcast, so... Exactly. So I'll have to keep my wits about me uh, and mm. just ride the emotional wave, so... <laughs> Well, I expected to talk to you after that start, and now we're talking before it instead, so I can't ask you how it went, but we will all be able to read about it after yeah. the fact, and and I'm sure that you will describe your mental and emotional state there, so <laughs> I won't have you spoil it now and reflect on the whole career, because that's probably what your post is going to be about. Yeah, yeah. All right. What are you hoping for? I mean, obviously you're hoping for like some throwback, uplifting, prime Felix sort of start, but are you at least realistically hoping for just like a quality start? Does it even yeah. matter what the last start is really? I just uh, I just would prefer that it not be bad. Yeah. I just would rather it not be bad. It doesn't need to be, you know, I'm pretty clear-eyed about where Felix is. I think, you know, when you start doing this professionally it can it has a funny effect on your fandom which is not a novel thought but you know people have asked if you can maintain some kind of fandom and still be uh, an objective baseball writer and i think when you're a mariners fan it's fairly easy to do that because they're just they're just bad they're often just bad Mm -hmm. and so you look at them and you're like hey this is a bad baseball team Uh, i like them anyway i like i like a lot of things that are suboptimal uh and this is one of them but when it comes to felix you just hope that he I don't know. You just want him to be able to walk out and like, he's going to get a standing ovation no matter what, but Mm -hmm. you want it to feel like he should. Yeah. Right? Like, uh, I would be happy with like a five inning, you know, two, three run, couple of strikeouts sort of deal. I think that Mm -hmm. that's probably what the best case scenario looks like, but who knows? Maybe we'll get something uh, a little bit more special than that. 
Yeah, as long as they get to put up a couple Ks on the King's Court, at least, just yeah. <laughs> you don't want to you don't want to get shut out in that last start, which uh, uh. I guess that hasn't happened to him this year. As lousy as his season has been, he has not had a start with zero strikeouts. So. That's true. It is funny that, and I I meant to look this up before we started recording and then forgot to, but it is sort of funny that he is going against against the A's. He's had such good luck against them as a franchise over the course of his career, and so there is something sort of poignant, I guess, about the final start, especially at home coming against them. I was going to say, it's a a game with playoff implications, not for Felix, but for the A's and Sean Mania, who's starting for them. And the next time he pitches will probably be in a wild card game if (laughs) if all goes well for the A's. So I guess this is the matchup the A's probably want at this point. The Mariners and Felix, not a bad way to end your season when you're trying to win every game, a four-game set against the Mariners. But Yeah. yeah, there's something more at stake here than just the emotional stuff, although there's a lot of that too yeah so that will be sort of fascinating and i i hope for the best by the time people are hearing this they probably already know how it turned out so yeah i do kind of think like people talk about playing spoiler for teams in this situation and i don't know whether that's something that would motivate felix in this position at all I personally can't imagine myself really getting much happiness out of spoiling someone else's playoff run if I am already eliminated from the playoffs, which maybe is because I'm just like not wired the way that baseball players are and I'm not competitive in quite the same way that they are. But to me, it feels like almost mean-spirited. It's like, well, we we don't get to go, so we're going to stop you from going anyway. And it's like, unless you have some specific grudge against that team, By hurting this one team, you're only helping out another team. It's not like you can prevent everyone from making the playoffs because if you don't (laughs) get to be happy, no one else does. So it's sort of a zero-sum game. So that the whole idea of spoiler, like unless there's maybe a natural rivalry involved, like this weekend, for instance, the the Cubs, of course, are playing the Cardinals, and maybe there's something at stake there, even though the Cardinals just cleaned the club's clock and are now eliminated themselves. But that kind of thing, just even when I was a fan, I mean, when I was a fan, the Yankees won the World Series every year, so I never really had to think about spoiler. But I think even in that situation, I just wouldn't really be motivated by the idea of ruining some other fan base's day. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't strike me as a particularly resonant experience either. I mean, I, I have been, you know, sort of <laughs> deeply enthralled in yes. in like you know, a rivalry and defeating that rival on your way to something like um, Mm -hmm. uh, the Mariners offer not a ton of great uh, examples of this. Like it, you know, it meant something to me even as a child to like have the Mariners defeat the Yankees in 95. Like that felt sure. Yeah. That felt like an accomplishment, but it was an accomplishment, right? It was, it was them (laughs) advancing through the playoffs and, and doing what they needed to it, you know, it just reads a little differently, but I don't know. Perhaps I'm in, you know, sitting here in in what is now rainy Arizona, um, removed from the moment. I'm perhaps giving myself more credit for not indulging in pettiness than I deserve. But yeah, yeah. I agree. It's not quite. It's it's not. It's certainly not the same as uh, as getting to defeat a rival for your own purposes in order to sort of you know further your own playoff aspirations for example yeah uh, so we'll leave it at that i guess <laughs> <laughs> well the mariners did have mercy on zach Granke at least and did not put him through the hassle of pitching a no-hitter against them so that was I, nice 
I enjoyed very much, you know, I, I watched, I was sort of bouncing around between games last night um, because obviously there were a number of them that had sort of important playoff implications. And so I came into that, like the inning that he gave up, you know, in the ninth when he gave up the, the no-hitter. And there was on the Astros broadcast a replay that focused just on his face when mm-hmm. the hit fell in. And he... It didn't change. His face didn't change. His <laughs> yeah. face was completely the same from start to finish. It's like you don't know where in the highlight the hit actually fell. <laughs> and so he's just a, a delightful weirdo, and we should appreciate Grinky more. <laughs> yep. On record as not really wanting to throw yeah. a no-hitter. So just great. not worth the trouble. <laughs> not worth the hassle. What a what a guy. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of playoff implications, I was going to say that at this time of year, I enjoy looking at friend of the show, Dan Hirsch's site, The Baseball Gauge, because he has a stat on there called Championship Win Probability, which expresses in percentage points just how much a certain play or a certain player's contribution swung his team's chances of winning the World Series. And at this time of year, when you look late in the regular season, when there are some pennant races, you start seeing the highest championship win probability added figures of the whole regular season appearing on those leaderboards. And so, for instance, since we were speaking about the A's, Their big home run that they got from Matt Chapman on Wednesday when they were down by a run against the Angels in the ninth inning and Chapman hit a two-run shot to give them the lead and ultimately the win. That is the second biggest hit of the season or second biggest play of the season according to championship win probability added. The only higher rated play thus far is Ryan Braun's Grand Slam on September 15th. Not to be confused with Ryan Braun's Grand Slam this week, which came (laughs) in the game that the Brewers clinched their playoff spot, but the one on September 15th, which was in a a similar situation to the Chapman homer, where I think it was like two outs in the ninth against the Cardinals, and it was the go-ahead shot, and the Brewers won a game that it looked like they were going to lose. The actual figures are not that high because this is again championship win probability added it's your odds of winning a world series and obviously your odds go up quite a bit if you make the playoffs as opposed to not making the playoffs but the odds are still against you because there's a big playoff field so these two plays that i just mentioned only added about one percentage point to Hmm. their respective team's odds of winning the world series but That's still a lot when you think of how inconsequential most plays in the regular season are. And this is obviously, you could look at it and say, well, every game counts the same and every win matters as much. And that is true in a sense. This is just looking at how much these plays swung the team's playoff odds at that moment. So there may have been a big hit in the A's first week of the season or something that ultimately affected their place in the standings as much as Chapman's homer. But in April, you're not going to get a big swing in playoff probability from sure. a single game. Whereas now that we know what the odds are and we can look and just see with a few games left that this team has to win X number of games, etc., you can quantify that. And so I think that is obviously like analytically questionable, but it very much <laughs> matches up with what a fan feels as you watch these games and these plays and what A's fans felt when Chapman hit that homer and what Brewers fans felt when Braun hit that homer. So I enjoy that. One of my favorite parts of the end of the regular season. For anyone who's curious, the biggest championship win probability added hit of all time, I believe, 
is Hal Smith's three-run home run in Game 7 of the 1960 World Series. Everyone talks about the Bill Mazeroski home run in that same game. That was the 10th biggest hit of all time, Hmm. but the Hal Smith one had a championship win probability added of 63 percentage points that kind of put that game away. So that's about as big as it's ever going to get, obviously, in Game 7 of the World Series. So we're we're talking about small numbers right now, but still big relative to what's happened over the past six months or so. It's a nice time of year because, you know, once we get into October, everyone's watching the same games, and that that's always a, a nice feeling, right? Because yeah. at any given time during the course of the regular season, you have, you know, fans of, well, <laughs> I don't know how many Marlins fans there are, but like you have fans of all 30 teams and they're engaged in their own small, you know, local interests. And then when we get to October, everyone's watching the same stuff. And this time of year occupies this really nice in-between where we all are kind of watching the same things, but there are still more things than we can comfortably watch at any given time. And so you still have the delight of, you know, getting an at-bat notification that something exciting has happened in the game that you happen to not be watching in that particular moment because you're paying attention to this other thing that matters a great deal. And yeah. so I just, I don't know, I really like this time of year. It just is... It's thrilling in a way that is sort of a very nice in-between emotional register from the craziness of uh, the postseason and sort of the ho-hum, oh, that guy did that thing four days ago. I totally missed that of the regular season. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wish Felix had gotten to be on the other side of that at some point in his (sighs) career or his time with the Mariners and... I don't think it tarnishes anyone's opinion of how great a pitcher he was in the way that, say, a team failing to make the playoffs, a team might win 90 games and miss the playoffs, and we won't even really remember that that team had a semi-successful season. With a player, certainly postseason success can elevate his reputation, but I don't know if never making the playoffs can really count as a strike against you. The only thing that's hurt Felix's reputation is how he's pitched and how he's aged, but, well... You're probably going to write about that. (laughs) It is. It is a thing that I have thought about a lot in the last couple of weeks, especially as teams have sort of solidified their, uh, you know, their playoff positions. Like when the Brewers uh, secured their playoff spot, I'm like, oh, Ben Gamble's going to play in the Mm -hmm. postseason. Like he's going to make that postseason roster. Ben Gamble. Yeah. And Gamble will have playoff <laughs> innings in the field. Felix mm-hmm. has none on the mound. Yeah. <sighs> it's been a weird couple of weeks, man. <laughs> it's, been a, it's been a couple of weeks of feelings. Yeah. I can imagine. I look yeah. forward to reading all about it. So <laughs> following up on our conversation from last week about the audacity of requesting home runs from players and players yes. promising those home runs, much to my surprise, I went to MLB.com and happened to see this headline, Telez honors young fans' wish with two-homer game. Rowdy Telez. So I've... I've <laughs> Read this story a couple times, and it seems like there are some conflicting accounts in here from different sources, and I can't quite figure out whether this was a request from a five-year-old boy here who had had some heart problems, and he's developed some sort of relationship with Telez, and it's very nice and heartwarming that they have made that connection, and I can't quite clarify whether the kid actually asked Telez to hit a home run or two home runs or whether Telez just promised him that he would, just volunteered that information. Telez said, I promised him three and I failed. I assume he was kidding. I'm not sure. But 
what kind of nerve does it take either to request home runs from Rowdy Telez or to be Rowdy Telez and guarantee home runs and then to deliver not just one but two? This story describes Telez as a slugger, which I guess you can call him a slugger because he's hit 21 home runs in a partial season this year. Granted, everyone has, but you could call him a slugger because he is kind of an all or nothing guy. Like he's a below league average hitter this season, despite all those dingers. But yeah, it seems like something that we've probably defined at some point in the show's history. But point is, this is not Aaron Judge promising a a home run. This is not Babe Ruth promising a home run. This is Rowdy Telez. And I don't know how often Rowdy Telez guarantees home runs, but this time at least he delivered and may have delivered double. So I don't get it, but it keeps happening. I am mostly shocked as I look at his player page at Fangraphs that he is not yet 25. Yeah, (laughs) that too. That's equally shocking. He is not yet 25 years old. (laughs) If you told me he was 40, I'd believe it. (laughs) And I don't mean that as a knock on Rowdy. Like, you know, you're a professional baseball player. You're doing better than I am. But if someone said, actually, we've learned that he lied the whole time and he's 40, I'd be like, yeah, all right. That makes a certain (laughs) amount of sense. It suggests to me that the, the level of confidence required to be even... A Rowdy Telez level baseball player is just so much greater than anything I will ever be able to achieve in my entire life. Because yeah. yeah, it's an that's an audacious promise. I wonder if he felt a little bad about it after and then was very relieved, or if he was just confident. Yeah, I, I can't, can't decide which is that better. Kind of confidence. <laughs> no, <laughs> never in my life. <laughs> never in my whole life. <laughs> Anyway, did not expect to see that that would be the guy who would be the next home run guarantor who would actually deliver. So that's that's something. Yeah, good for him. He actually says in this story, I guess he was asked about reaching the milestone of hitting 20 home runs. And he says, hitting 20 is special. And I was thinking, is it? Is it really (laughs) rowdy? Is it special anymore when you hit 20? Because as we speak, 128 guys have hit 20 this year. And by the time people listen to this, it, it may be more. So it's a lot less special than it used to be. But on the other hand, it is pretty special to be in the big leagues at all and to hit even a single homer and to hit 20 in a single season. It is pretty special in the grand scheme of things. Less special in a relative sense than it once was, but it's still up there. Yeah, it's still an accomplishment, right? It's a thing that you can, like, that's a thing you you tell people when you go to your high school reunion, like you're like, I not only was I a big leaguer, like that one year I had 21 dingers. Yeah, and people are gonna look. Them, I, I promised a kid. Yeah, people are gonna look at you and be like, "Wow, Rowdy, he really made something of himself." Like that Rowdy worked out for him. Yep. What a great name. What a <laughs> really what a great. just yeah. a, it's just an 80 name. Yeah, maybe not his given name. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to investigate it. I just would prefer that his he was born and his mother looked upon him and said, eh, rowdy. Seems yeah, right. I just looked it up and I really regret it. No. Okay, you have <laughs> to tell me Not nearly as much character. Ryan John. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. It's terrible. No. Oh, well, I'm glad he went with rowdy. Good job. So am I. Yeah. <laughs> so last time Sam and I spoke about what we love about baseball And I regretted that you were not there to give your own two cents about that. So 
I know you listened to it. I don't know if you want to echo or add to anything we said. You have your own reasons, which may overlap with ours, but perhaps not. I liked very much what you had to say about, well, I liked parts. I liked all of your, both of your answers, but there were there are parts of both of your answers that really struck a chord with me. I, I agree with Sam that the the ability of baseball to sort of elevate otherwise sort of pedestrian moments just by virtue of its presence and sort of um, routine mm-hmm. is really lovely. You know, I also listen to like games on the radio when I'm, you know, taking care of the garden or whatever. And the sort of accessible inquiry that we have into baseball where we are able to ask kind of tricky questions but generally arrive at answers or parts of answers I think is a big part of it I mean for me I think that baseball is one of the rare sort of pursuits where you get to marry rigor and whimsy in the same thing right it lends Mm -hmm. itself well to both and i think benefits from having both things sort of in equal measure right because if it's all whimsy it can get it can get a little saccharine and if it's all rigor it can get a bit dull and if it's both things it's really quite special because you get to experience such a range of not only emotions but sort of intellectual pursuits while you're engaged with this thing and I think because of that, it helps us to, I don't know, like you said, understand other things about ourselves in the world beyond baseball, right? It gives a very easy and accessible way to grapple with serious questions, but also to step back from them when you need to and enjoy yourself. And Mm -hmm. I think that this is, you know, this isn't something that's unique to baseball writers. The intensity of it is perhaps a little bit different than it is just for fans, but I think it's true with fans also, which is that, you know, you get to you just get to meet cool folks as a result of engaging with this sport. You know, yeah. I have this little, this will be a thread in my Felix piece tomorrow also, but like there are just people in my life who I, I really genuinely love and can't imagine sort of getting through the, the hellscape without. <laughs> and I know them because of baseball and, yeah. you know, I'm sure that there would be other people who I would feel similarly about, uh, if, there were a different thing that sort of got me excited to reach the the end of the day and get to unwind in front of it. But it's a very, I think because of how much time we spend with it over the course of the the fun months of the year where we're sort of most inclined to engage with other people because it isn't dark and dreary and we want to be out and about experiencing the world. It just, it grabs you in a very particular kind of way. And I think that the other people who are similarly moved, you know, you can find a real sense of fellowship with those folks. So mm-hmm. I just, I don't know, that combination of things is really, is really quite special. So I don't, yeah. I think that's why I like it. Even though I have elected to be a fan of a franchise that often makes me quite sad or frustrated, I guess it's a testament to the the power of the other things that I not only wanted to keep engaging with it as a hobby, but felt compelled to uh, think about it full time. So it's mm-hmm. a it's a cool thing. It's a good question. I got yeah. very nervous. I knew I knew that you would make me answer it. And so I had to <laughs> listen to your guys's answers. Uh, I'm a couple, you know, rounds of things behind because of travel and whatnot. But I mm-hmm. so I was driving around looking for coffee today I was listening to you guys talk about it. I was like, oh, I gotta, gotta have a good answer. <laughs> yeah. Give some thought to this. 
How has your AFL experience been? And I guess we should explain for people who are not as plugged into the prospect world what the Arizona Fall League actually is. Right. So Fall League, which is now officially aptly named, you know, there were a couple of days there at the beginning of Fall League because the schedule got moved up where it was Fall League, but not in the fall, which Mm -hmm. I felt bad about <laughs> but it's a it's an opportunity for some of the better prospects mostly uh, prospects uh, around baseball to play more baseball <laughs> uh and is for you know for them it's an opportunity to play against good competition and extend their seasons for scouts it's an opportunity to see other uh organizations players all in one place uh and for me you know it's I obviously am not um, doing any of the heavy lifting with drafting or prospect lists that task falls to Eric and Kylie, but it seemed like I would be able to offer more uh, reasonable and substantive feedback if I saw more of the guys who they're going to end up ranking. Obviously, not everyone who ends up on a Fangraphs prospect list plays in the Fall League, but a lot of the the headliners do. So uh, rather than just moving commas around, I thought I'd come down and see what it's all about. And I have enjoyed, uh, I have enjoyed it a great deal. It is, you know, it's lightly attended. It is a very interesting mix of folks. There are a lot of uh, scouts and other industry people floating around, but there are fans who come to Fall League and engage mm-hmm. with Fall League, some of whom I would imagine many of whom are local, but some of whom travel. And it's just uh, it's just kind of relaxed, you know? Mm-hmm. I think there are, of the games that I've gone to so far, the, the highest attendance that was announced was around 800 people. Uh, so these are not hugely well-attended events. You can hear individual fans responding to things yeah. <laughs> in a way that is sometimes very delightful. Uh, on, on Friday, last Friday when I arrived, there was one, he sounded like a Phillies fan, who was just having having a an ongoing dialogue with the home plate umpire at Salt River, which Salt River Field is is uh, testing the robo-umps. So I got to see the robo-ump experience live, mm-hmm. which I will have to write about at some point. The, the latency, I imagine, is not noticeable to a casual fan, but was noticeable to me in a way that I found kind of distracting, uh, at least initially. Uh, but this poor... This poor ump was getting just railed on by a Phillies fan, and he wasn't calling balls and strikes. It was my worst nightmare realized. (laughs) Yeah, Um, I I wonder how long it will take for, like, everyone to be clued in that umpires are not actually making the calls anymore. I truly don't think it will matter. (laughs) I do not think it will matter. Yeah, will it be, like, years? Because if you're just, like, a casual fan— and yelling at umpires is something that you think everyone does and you've always yeah. done and you're not paying attention to the new technology and you don't know that they're robot umpires. Like, how many years will it take until everyone in the ballpark understands that, oh, right, the umpire is not actually influencing this call and will even that change them or will they just yell because you can't really yell at a computer and that guy's just standing there? I wonder if the the sort of more humane balance that will end up striking is that fans will become very invested in check swing calls. And so the home plate umpire will no longer bear the brunt of, of the umbrage. But man, those those first and third base umpires, they better be on their game. I wonder if that'll be the direction it goes. Yeah. <laughs> My stars. I meant to say, by the way, that one of the pleasures of 
scouting, I guess you could call it. That's sort of what I was doing when I went to the AFL because I was at scout school primarily to write about it, but also to go through the exercise seriously, not with an eye towards being a scout like most of the people there, but just to experience that side of things. And I enjoyed going. It was sort of low stakes for me because I I wasn't actually angling for a career in that field. But it it was kind of nice to see these guys at that level and be able to maybe form some sort of fondness for them, like seeing them in this place before they get big. And there are a lot of big prospects, of course, in the AFL. It attracts a, a lot of premium players. But I enjoyed seeing some of these guys when they were kind of under the radar and hoping that like one day I'd be able to say, oh, I saw that guy when he was in the AFL league and now he's an all-star or an MVP or something. And I found myself getting attached to these guys in a way that if I were an actual talent evaluator who was seeing players in person and giving a lot of weight to the eye test, I would want to be wary of because, of course, when you're seeing someone in a small sample, then maybe you see them play particularly well and you can get unreasonably excited about them. And in my case, I have no illusions that I am actually great at evaluating players, seeing them in person. But like, I remember forming a, a prospect crush on this Cubs infielder named Gyaskar Amaya, mm-hmm. who at the time was a 20-year-old second baseman coming off a season where he had a 698 OPS in A-ball. And currently he is a 26-year-old second baseman who is coming off a season in which he had a 642 OPS in double-A ball. So things have not really worked out as I envisioned them for Yoskar Amaya. But at the time, for whatever reason, I thought he looked pretty good. And I went back to my hotel room, and as I wrote about at Grantland at the time, I talked to a couple people in the game and asked them if I was seeing something that wasn't there. And they said, no, yeah, he's good. You're you're right to to like him. And ultimately, I guess I wasn't really. And I, I hadn't seen the stats either. So I had no idea what his history was, where he came from, what kind of season he had had. And so when I went back to the room and like looked up the stats and it was like, oh, oh, okay, maybe, <laughs> maybe not a top prospect then. But I still had that sort of experience of like divorcing myself from what I know and being able to enjoy seeing something in the moment and letting myself kind of get attached to someone because there were no stakes or consequences to my doing so. Yeah, I think that in terms of putting Fall League in sort of its proper context, I think the way that like Eric has described thinking about it is useful, which is that, you know, it's it's probably helpful to focus mostly on the positives that you see, um, mm-hmm. right? Because if a player demonstrates a skill, they show that they're able to do something, like you you know something about them now, right? You know that they yeah. can do this thing. But you know, you also are seeing guys at the end of a long minor league season, depending on, you know, where they are both in their careers and how deep into, say, the minor league playoffs their teams played, they might be dealing with fatigue. So you want to put relative underperformance perhaps in in a context where you're not going to, you know, overly debit their prospect profile as a result of that sort of thing. You know, I enjoy... I just like I I am not uh, an evaluator by any means, so I don't mean to affect an expertise I don't have. But I just think that it's a very cool kind of imagination um, that scouts demonstrate, like the ability to project in a way that is meaningful. I think is it's just a very 
it's just a very cool skill. It's a skill that I think is fun to observe. And so it's nice to get to talk to those guys and to see kind of what they're seeing and what matters to them and to get to, you know, ask doofy questions in a context where people aren't going to look at me too hard. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it is, uh, you know, you'll see a guy who's like, looks really good for a couple of weeks and it's easy to get too high on guys or you might see someone who's clearly demonstrating fatigue and perhaps isn't, you know, throwing their fastball as hard as they usually do and to get overly pessimistic. So I think putting things in their proper context is important. But yeah, it's, I don't know, it's just a cool, it's a cool thing. And it's mm -hmm. nice to, it's just nice to be in a ballpark that's quiet like that. It's a, I didn't realize that I, you know, I, it's not like I've experienced um, a ton of burnout lately, but it's just, it was a nice reset from the, the typical sort of baseball experience that I have mm -hmm. either watching games on TV or being in a major league ballpark to just have the have the quiet. It feels very, everything feels very close in a way that is, is pretty cool. So I, yeah. I like it. Yeah. And I remember that was something them drilling into us at scout school was that because we were seeing amateur players some days and then pro players some days that they drew the distinction that if you're an amateur scout, then usually you're looking for reasons why someone will succeed mm -hmm. because most of the time, almost everyone you're seeing will fail. Yeah. yeah. If you're going to high school games, college games, the vast majority of players there do not have a future in pro ball. And so it's just like the default assumption is that guy's not going to make it. You don't even write up reports on most of the players you see because you don't want to waste your time just writing, nope, 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 not good. Whereas in Pro Bowl, everyone you're seeing, someone believed in them enough to sign them or draft them. And so there's something there that someone who's qualified to evaluate talent liked. And so you're kind of looking for things that they don't do well. You're looking for reasons not to like them because you're filing reports on every player in Pro Bowl. And so you're trying to weed out the ones that you don't think will make it. I liked that way of looking at things, even though even in the minors, even in Pro Bowl, most guys are still not to get there but there's uh, a little more to see yeah no for sure it's a uh, it, you need to be properly calibrated and i think the amateur pro distinction is uh is useful and then it is also useful if you have been accustomed to recently watching major league ball to appropriately calibrate your expectations <laughs> downward yeah. which is not to say that those players won't be you know major league contributors or potential all-stars but that they are at a very different phase of their careers. And so, you know, it's the same as anyone who bounces back and forth between minor league and major league ball. You need to remember who you're watching so that mm -hmm. you're not judging in a way that is unreasonable relative to the to the competition level. Yeah. Did you see this controversy about the Mike Miner <laughs> dropped pop-up and ensuing 200th strikeout of the what season? What a goofy thing. Oh, this is so silly. <laughs> so I'll just set it up. The Rangers were playing the Red Sox, and obviously both teams totally out of it. Mike Miner was pitching and having a, a great start. He's had a, a very good season. Obviously, he's been through a lot physically. He's missed seasons. He's had injuries, and he's come back, and he's put it all together now in his 30s, had his first all-star season ever, and he was on the precipice of 200 strikeouts. So he started this game with 191, and he got eight, and he had one more to go. And it was the eighth inning, and he was up to 124 pitches. So this was his last inning and, and probably his last batter. 
and a hitter on the Red Sox popped up and it fell just foul, uh, just a, a little bit between home plate and first base. And Rangers first baseman Ronald Guzman let the ball fall foul, could have easily caught it, but let it fall foul clearly so that Mike Miner would have another shot to record his 200th strikeout of the season. And he did. He got it. He got the the big 2-0-0. So congrats to Mike Miner on that. And some people have been mad online about this and maybe mad offline. I don't know. I haven't read the quotes, but this seems like it requires a a Grant Brisby unwritten rules (laughs) breakdown or something because... This is so silly. And the situation, it was what I think it was. The Rangers were up 7-5 in the ninth inning, actually. I said the eighth. This was the ninth inning with one out. So game almost over, but it made it slightly less likely that the Rangers would close out and win this game. And to be fair, it looked like Guzman was going to catch the ball if it had fallen in fair territory, like he ran down and he looked like he was about to catch it, but then it became clear that it was going to fall foul, and so he opted to give his teammate another shot at this personal milestone. Are the people... So I saw I saw the, the tweet from Jeff Wilson about this, but are the people who are mad online... Red Sox fans? Who is mad online? <laughs> it's not entirely clear to me <laughs> which one, which side is more mad about this. Because, like, uh, Pete Abraham, who covers the Red Sox, tweeted, Mike Miner's 200th strikeout should have a big asterisk. That was Bush. Chasing a milestone that way is unprofessional. And <laughs> I don't know. Okay. <laughs> so I don't I don't mean to call this particular tweet into question. We will question the sentiment rather than yes. this particular tweet. So but here's the thing about that. I first of all, I doubt very strongly that Mike Miner had anything to do with this decision, right? It wasn't as if he said, Hey, let it drop. If right. he said, Hey, let it drop, that would be one thing. Although yes. still I don't know that it would be that big of a thing because is it Bush League to elect to not get a shirt out? <laughs> is that Bush League? That seems like that yeah. seems like charity. We we R- applaud right. charity. We think that charity is kind. This seems like mutually yeah. beneficial charity. The only reason I could think of why Red Sox fans or Red Sox players would be upset about this is that like <laughs> I'm really having to twist my mind into a pretzel to come up with why this would bother them, but. I guess it's because, like, hey, don't show us up like we're trying our hardest here. You should try your hardest, too, even if it hurts us. Like, don't make the game into a sideshow, like, or don't go easy on us. Like, don't have pity on us, even though that's not the real motivation for this. It has nothing to do with the Red Sox, really. That's the only thing I can think of. Now, if you're a Rangers player, a Rangers fan or, or something, then... You still want the team to win, like whatever Rangers fans were watching this game, even with obviously the the season amounting to nothing really and no playoff stakes here. You still get some small amount of happiness, perhaps, uh, from your team winning. And so you're essentially saying that Mike Miner's feelings matter more than the many Rangers fans out there who want to win this game. I guess you could make that argument or like, why should we put Mike Miner's personal accomplishment ahead of his teammates wanting to win? Like... Chris Woodward, the manager of the Rangers, said, I didn't love the idea that we dropped a pop-up at the end. So I I guess he 
wasn't totally on board either. And then he said, but on the other side of that, they, meaning the Red Sox, swung at three pitches in a row in the eighth (laughs) inning down by two. If they have any beef with that, as in the pop-up, they chose to not try to win the game as well. Wow. Well, if anyone should be mad about anything, I think it might be him being kind of sassy, I suppose. I have a tough time following that. They swung at three pitches in a row, so that means they're not trying to win? What if if they were good pitches? Well, yeah. What is that that bit of business? When you're losing, you're not supposed to swing? Is that the idea? I I don't understand. Sure, you want to get guys on base, but swinging is also one way to do that. I don't understand the logic of that at all especially from a guy who manages joey gallo who struck out almost 38 percent almost 38.4 did strike out 38.4 percent of the time this this here year yeah wasn't trying to win no i don't understand i mean i appreciate that it is abnormal it is not the normal course of business to engage in behavior like this on the other hand who gives even one good damn about what happened in this Rangers Red Sox game? Who cares even one little bit? I right. think that it's fine. All you're setting him up to do is to have to try hard again. That's all mm-hmm. you're setting Mike Miner up to do. It's like, hey, you have to try hard again, and you, guy, get an- whoever was next up in the Red Sox lineup, you get an opportunity to try hard, and yeah. it's just a little it's a little easier because there are fewer outs, but it's not that much easier. I think this is, this is very silly. I hope that we elect to not make this a controversy <laughs> because it does not matter, even one tiny little bit. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter yeah. at all. What I want to know is like, was this discussed and when and by whom? Like, was Ronald Guzman standing out there at first base thinking, all right, if this comes to me and it falls three feet into foul territory, I'm just going to let it drop because the big 200 is at stake for my teammate Mike here. How did he even know that right. Mike Miner was at 199 strikeouts? It's like, usually players are not hyper aware of right. milestones like that. Like, that's not a big milestone. And I wouldn't expect everyone on the team to be aware, oh boy, this is it. He's on 199. We just need one more here. So was Ronald Guzman just studying the stats? Was this like discussed on the bench between innings somehow? And the whole team said, hey guys, let's do a nice thing for Mike here if this comes up. Did they even know that Mike Miner would have wanted them to do this? Like, what if Mike Miner wanted the out in that situation? That helps his stats, too. What if uh, the the hitter had hit a home run or something instead? Uh, So, I don't know. uh, I think it's it's nice that Guzman was being thoughtful and, and doing something for his teammate and friend, I suppose. So it's sort of touching in a way, but also deeply confusing. <laughs> I wonder I wonder if what we all really would have preferred is just for Guzman to be a better actor. Right? Mm, like to yeah. to trip. Yes. He should have he should have fallen down. He should have been like, ah, I fell. Right, yeah. Although, yeah, that's that's an even bigger sacrifice because then it makes him look uncoordinated. Yeah. <laughs> like I I didn't I didn't mean to to set my friend up to have to try hard again. I just, I fell. 
I, one time working from home, my foot fell asleep because I was sitting on it and I got up to get another cup of coffee and I just fell over. I just <laughs> fell over in my house and there was no one there because I was working from home by myself. And thankfully I didn't spill any coffee because there was none left in my cup, but I just fell over and that was embarrassing and no one would have known except for the fact that I just told that story. But he should have just fallen over. He should have just been like, ah, I had a moment. I had a moment where I fell down. <laughs> I just got deja vu. Did Jeff also have a story about falling down at home? Did he while really? Blogging? Or have I? Or have I told this story <laughs> multiple times? Perhaps. Yeah, uh, that's a possibility. We've all done it. We've probably all fallen in our homes while blogging about baseball. It's very it's, relatable. It's just one of those things where you know, and like it's a slow motion fall, right? Because you're you're mm-hmm. practically still seated, and so you have time to think about the falling and it makes you realize that you hope you don't die by falling off a building because uh, you'd have even more time to think about it and the whole time I'm like well I'm gonna fall (laughs) and here I am falling and I thought about it the whole time and it was unpleasant I did get a bruise on my knee but I didn't break the mug so it it worked out okay yeah Anyway, this all calls to mind a conversation that Sam and I have had in the past about, like, who does the game belong to? Like, is the game for the players or is it for the fans? And I think Sam kind of comes down on the for the players side and I maybe come down more on the for the fans side. But this is a case where the players were sort of hijacking the game and saying that what matters most now is Mike Miner's 200th strikeout more so than sealing this meaningless September win against the Red Sox. And I suppose there might be someone out there who could object to this. It's like the thing that I've said before about Twitter, which is that you can always find someone who is upset about something. So the fact that one person tweeted about this, or maybe a few people tweeted about this, does not mean that there was a a general outcry about this dropped pop-up. But I have many questions about this. And on the other hand, I have no questions about this because it's so utterly insignificant. I think that it is fine for us to be confused by the decision, not because we are incensed by it, but because it is confusing, especially as it has been expressed by the the folks affiliated with the Rangers who have talked about this. Mm-hmm. But I also think that in general, showing kindness to one's coworkers is a laudable thing. And yep. sometimes it doesn't work out quite the way you want it to, or you do it in a way that is silly. But the the general sentiment behind it is fine. And since well, this is uh, perhaps a very loaded way of saying this, but since the Rangers have already let their fans down for most of the season, as it turned out, it's fine for them to do this one. I mean, this time they did it because they wanted Mike Miner to have a nice day at work, and that's a pretty good reason of all the reasons there are. I don't really mean that they've let them down. They were surprisingly competitive. It was sort of this whole weird thing, but, you know, they couldn't get Lance Lynn a Cy Young, which is fine, (laughs) so they could get Mike Miner this. It's good. It's mm-hmm. fine. I would okay. like to hear a lot more about it, but not in a like prickly way, in a like yeah. explain yourself sort of yes. way. Just what discussions went yeah. into this? <laughs> what's going? Right. What's going on? Who knew what? <laughs> right. I need the. I need the TikTok. <laughs> Who was the ringleader? Yeah, that's what I want to know. <laughs> All right. Well, this is still a developing situation, trying to put it together on the fly here. So after we finish recording, I'm going to dive deep into the literature on this, and I will report my findings at the end of the episode. I have a feeling that there may be more to say. So the thing that we had meant to do with this episode, which is uh, now closer to the end (laughs) than the beginning, 
is to do a little regular season in review because this is probably our last episode of the regular season pending tiebreakers and next week we will be talking about the playoffs and so before that starts uh, and we can keep this pretty concise i guess just wanted to review whether this was a good regular season or not and it could become appreciably better depending on how the rest of this weekend goes but based on what we've seen was this a good year and and i've had this conversation before and it's always a tough one because i never know exactly how to decide whether a baseball season was good and obviously the playoffs can influence that and i'm sure after the playoffs we'll talk to sam because he does his annual exercise in determining what was the most memorable thing from that season and what will we remember in the future from that year. But just regular season only, it's hard to say because it's so long and it's always there for months and months and months and they always play the same number of games and the same number of teams always make the playoffs and someone always wins the same awards. So in that sense, it's the same every season. And there's probably less of a difference between regular seasons than there is between playoffs because you can have noticeably more exciting or boring playoffs, whereas most of the regular season is just sort of a grind. But all of that said, what's your impression of 2019? Has it been a good year? I uh, I hesitate to say it's been a bad year because, like you said, like you know, there's a lot going on. It's yeah. a grind. It's many things. I enjoyed a lot of individual performances this year. Mm-hmm. I would say that I enjoyed uh, the Twins being good and winning the Central. Mm-hmm. But I did not enjoy how perhaps the the least predictable division, because I think that we would probably say that the the NL Central ended up having the most sort of variation in terms of who we thought was going to win was really the results of those teams not being very good. Mm-hmm. So I didn't like that. I don't love the fact that, oh, man, let's see, how many are we at now? We currently have, I can do this quickly. Here we go. So we we have we have four teams that have lost at least 100 games. Yeah. All of them have lost more than 100 games. The Tigers mm-hmm. lost 111 baseball games. They have a negative 320 <laughs> run differential. So uh, like Tigers fans are like, hey, baseball is the worst. Right. And in and even in a year where everyone hit a bunch of home runs, they didn't even hit a bunch of home runs. So they didn't even get to like be uh, excited about dingers. Mm-hmm. So I think that those things stack up to say, not super great, mm-hmm. but there are things that were that were great and exciting. You know, th- there were some very fun and impressive rookie performances. Yep. Some of which were expected, right? You know, we expected before he he got laid up with injury that Fernando Tatis would be great, and he was he was very good. Um, mm-hmm. But some of which took us by surprise. You know, we did not expect that Pete Alonso would have the year he did, or that Jordan Alvarez would have the year that he did. So those things are very exciting. It, uh, Lance Lynn delighted me just because I, that's weird. I like that kind of chaos. Mm-hmm. But I think that some of the league-wide trends were um, concerning, you know, the the split between the haves and the have-nots I think is probably not a thing that is especially great for baseball. I think the situation with the ball, not the best. Mm-hmm. Not the best. Yeah. 
Right. There are only like a handful of criteria, I think, that you could really use to separate regular seasons. So there's like offensive environment. Was it a a weird year in some way? Were there perhaps a record number of home runs and also (laughs) a record number of strikeouts, et cetera, et cetera? So when you think back to certain seasons, it's like, oh, 1987, that was like the rabbit ball year, or 1930, that was a rabbit ball year, or certain years have a ton of stolen bases, or, you know, whatever. So that can differentiate a season. And then you could have great record chases, by which I mean individual player record chases. Mm -hmm. So it could be home run title, it could be a consecutive game hitting streak, it could be maybe a player hitting 400, you know, some sort of really special milestone that one or more players is going after and perhaps accomplishing. You could have great pennant races really coming down to the wire all over the season. Everyone thinks of like the last day of the 2011 season as the greatest day of regular season baseball. Something like that alone can really elevate a season. And then I guess related to that also is just the general overall parity and competitive balance in the game at that point. And there are probably other things that aren't coming to mind, but I think those are really the big factors. Obviously, in some years, there are a lot of really great rookies debuting or just a lot of really spectacular seasons. Mike Trout declared this his best season, or at least he said that he felt the best in the batter's box this year that he has ever felt. And so there are things like that. Obviously, there are tragedies in certain years, including this year. And there are other things of historical significance that happen. But just sticking with the few things I named, so it certainly was a weird offensive environment year for better or worse. Uh, It's kind of hard to say because it's subjective and it's a matter of taste, but it got to the point, I think, where it dominated the discussion about baseball so much that it became tiresome to me. I was sort of sick of hearing records broken every day and always the same sort of record, and it sapped all of the specialness from that kind of record and at the same time there weren't really interesting individual player record chases sam and i talked about that before this hasn't been a great era for record chases and interesting records being broken and i think this year was probably the same and other than that i think as you said probably the thing that is most notable about this year even though it didn't totally preclude some pennant races and intrigue late in the year is the lopsidedness of the game. And it's really gotten to a greater extent than ever before, at least when you look at the extremes. So I saw the stat earlier today because Joshian mentioned it, but the highest total for the number of teams with 100 or more wins or losses in a single season Before this year was six, and I think it had been accomplished, or I don't know if you want to call it an accomplishment, on only six previous seasons, I believe, or maybe even five. And that included the last couple of years, so 2017 and 2018, we're kind of in this era of super teams and terrible teams. But it's really been raised a notch and also lowered a notch this season where We have now broken that record, I believe. It's now seven teams have either 100 wins or losses, Mm -hmm. and two teams still have a shot at getting to that mark. The Twins and the Braves could still get to 100 wins. So we may very well 
blow by that previous record of six such teams and get to eight or even nine, which, you know, on a percentage basis is a huge increase over the previous record. That's almost a third of the league will either have 100 wins or 100 losses. And I think maybe that's, it's not necessarily disastrous. I mean, I like watching really good teams too, except that it's not so fun that a lot of those wins are coming at the expense of the same few teams. and. Poor Tigers fans and Orioles fans and Marlins fans and Royals fans. And uh, that's just for fan bases, but that's a, a percentage of the overall fan base. And also, as Rob Arthur has shown, I think there is a lower percentage of games that actually have like real playoff implications in this season compared to some earlier seasons. And I don't know how noticeable that is, but attendance is down a bit, and Rob also made the case that that has something to do with the lack of games that actually matter compared to past seasons. So, I mean, that's probably the thing. Like, if you had to look back in the future, I guess 2019 will be the record-juiced ball year, depending on what happens next, but it will also probably be the year of extreme teams and I don't know that either of those things is actually a good thing. So baseball is still good, but compared to every other season, I don't know if that actually helps 2019's case. I think that baseball is at its very best when when what we are seeing on the field is primarily a product of, and granted, like, you know, how a team is coached always matters, how a roster is constructed always matters, what ownership is willing to spend in terms of payroll always matters. So I don't mean to overstate the degree to which this is a binary where there are years that the actions of players dictate what happens on the field and there are years where they don't. But I think that baseball is at its very best when what we are seeing feels at least as if it is the byproduct of baseball players engaged in fierce competition with one another. And I I think that when you have a year where you simultaneously have you know, uh, an influence on the offensive environment that is not the result of, you know, individual players. Oh, sorry, there's there's controversy in the condo parking lot, so I apologize if there's some <laughs> honking. Someone's in the wrong spot. You're going to get honked at. So Someone I think that, you know. the pop-up out there. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> we'll never get a satisfactory explanation for it. That's the part that's the funniest. We're never going to, we will never be satisfied with the explanation that we are given for that. Anyway, um, I think that no, when you have something like the ball changing that so dramatically impacts the offensive environment that is not the result of, you know, players figuring out a new way to swing or pitchers being suddenly more effective in a way that is compelling, it can all feel a little artificial. And I think when you marry that with having a number of teams that are taking a step back in a variety Mm. of different ways from being competitive, which also feels like an artificial sort of relinquishing of competition, those things in concert with one another sort of pull our focus in a way that is disappointing, right? It will be, I think that you are right, that when we look back on this particular year, we aren't, we probably aren't going to remember, like, we're not going to remember Pete Alonso. We're just probably not. I mean, Mets fans will, uh, and, you know, close observers will, but in 15 years, we, we will probably think of this year being the year of 
the ball being different and this particular um, sort of competitive environment. And so I, I think that that is to the game's detriment, which doesn't mean that there weren't a ton of things to enjoy about baseball this year, but it just pulls focus from the place that we want it. And it, by doing that, I think tends to put us in a, an area of uh, baseball discourse that is naturally very prickly and sometimes quite unpleasant. And it is necessarily unpleasant. I don't mean to say that like we can't have hard conversations about the state of the game. I think that's very important for us to do, but it, it does sort of mute our ability to sort of appreciate the individual performances and even the team performances that we're seeing uh, in a way that I think is sort of a bummer because there still were great things that happened this year, right? There were still incredible individual performances and there were teams that were great and would have been perhaps would have accrued fewer wins, but still would have been very good baseball teams, even if the uh, competitive environment had been uh, sort of more evenly balanced. So I think that's the place where I, I wish that it had it had gone a little differently this year because uh, mm-hmm. we're missing out on some pretty cool stuff and we won't remember it in the same way that we would if things were sort of more organically driven by the players themselves rather than these external factors that seem to be dictating the direction that the game goes this season. Yeah, and Rob Manfred did make a comment about the ball this week, which was somewhat stronger than his previous statements. He was talking to Maury Brown of Forbes, and he said that they've reconvened the panel of scientists that had previously studied the ball, and their conclusion was essentially that the ball was responsible for the increased home run rate, but that they weren't really sure why or or what was causing the reduced drag. So he wants them to take another look at it, and he also says... The only thing I'm prepared to say at this point in time is I do think that we need to see if we can make some changes that give us a more predictable, consistent performance from the baseball, which, if you read it carefully, does not mean that they are necessarily going to deaden the ball or increase the drag. He didn't say that we're going to make it less lively. He said we're going to make it more predictable and consistent which could mean that it is predictably and consistently at this current rate. I don't know, but probably not. If they were to make a change in one direction or another, it would probably be to make it less lively. So he seems to not be totally pleased with how things have gone, because in the past he has made the case that fans like dingers, so more dingers is good. And now he seems to be changing his tune a little bit, whether it is about the current rate of homers or just the wild swings in the rate of homers. One of those two things or both of those things seem to have gotten his goat a bit. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine that he is, and again, we will <laughs> we will just, for the purposes of this conversation, accept that, I don't know, the ball has a mind of its own, Mm, some mythical forces dictating the degree to which it is lively or deadened. We'll just say that. I'm sure that it is. he has to be aware of the fact that the continued conversation being about the ball is not great for the sport. And so I would imagine that 
he is both keen to try to address it at a time where he can be on the record and then we will all shift our attention to the postseason and maybe um, be a little less engaged with that conversation. And also that it should look probably less extreme as a run scoring environment and a home run environment so that, you know, for instance, you and me and Sam don't spend part of every other episode of this podcast going, who is it? How many home runs now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Rowdy who? <laughs> huh? Rowdy? Let's get rowdy indeed, right? So mm -hmm. I, I'm sure that he is conscious of the fact that that is both a thing that people are very aware of and a thing that people are sort of throwing around as a way to diminish the achievements of players who he has to know that, you know, it is it is better for the sport if we're not mentally putting an asterisk next to people's names when we're looking at leaderboards from this year. So, yeah. Well, uh, unless it's Mike Miner's 200th strikeout, right. then you've got to get the asterisk in there. I want... I want a deep dive so badly. <laughs> this seems like something that uh, our our pal at the Athletic uh, will will be looking into, right? Levi's yeah. Levi's got to be on this beat. Come on, Levi, we're counting yeah. on you. The, Get to the bottom of this. <laughs> the hopes and dreams of a nation turn their eyes to Texas. Mm -hmm. To Levi. Yep. Do it. Yep. All right. Well, I, we covered the whole regular season in uh, 15 to 20 minutes there. <laughs> but We did an yeah. okay job. I mean, I, think so. I, I will say, Ben, I have enjoyed podcasting with you throughout the regular season greatly. Yeah. So in that sense, I think that it's been a very nice year. Yeah, I think it's it's been an above average regular season for Effectively Wild from my perspective. <laughs> we've got a whole extra co-host more co-hosts than we've ever had before it's like more 100 win teams also more co-hosts of effectively wild more right. good things and we're able to look at the standings and should you know the rays be able to hold on to their spot we will have mm. uh both a, a a fan graphs and effectively wild uh I, I don't know if we're obligated to root for the Rays in homage to Jeff. Uh, we could we could decide to be very mad at him for abandoning us and say, <laughs> go A's. But really, it's just, you know, it's nice to have some representation. It's very exciting. That part's uh -huh. good. Yeah, I'll, I'll be happy for Jeff. Yeah. Hard to hold a grudge against the guy for, for going yeah. and taking that job, especially because we would not be podcasting right now, probably, yeah. if Jeff had not taken that job. So It's true. Good things come out of somewhat sad things. Yeah, it's nice when people follow their dreams, even mm -hmm. if they take them to Tampa. <laughs> even if he didn't even think it was his dream yeah. <laughs> until shortly before it, it became <laughs> so. <laughs> we, all, we all change as we age. Yeah. You know, my foot fell asleep again as we were sitting here. I think that's about age too careful when you get up <laughs> well it's very precarious because these are high chairs so if i were to fall it might actually do some damage so i think i'll wait until it it comes back alive human bodies what a what a weird thing people play baseball with them it's incredible yeah. it's a great regular season because a bunch of people did this impossibly hard thing and only some of them got horribly hurt while they did it mm-hmm it's yep. kind of amazing. Yeah. Those people are probably less likely to just fall in their homes for, for no reason. But that does happen. We hear about injuries sure. where people just fell or sneezed or who knows what. They hurt themselves in all kinds of ways, just like us regular folk. So yes. baseball players too. Yeah. 30s are so perilous. <laughs> All right. Well, enjoy Felix's last stand if you can and the rest of your AFL experience. We will reconvene 
once the playoffs have begun. Sounds good. All right, so I do have some updates on the Mike Miner pop-up situation. The plot thickens. First, I will note that Felix had a, what did we call it when he came back off the injured list? A credible start. I guess he had a credible start. Five and a third innings, three runs, more walks than strikeouts, but hey, focus on the positives. Matt Chapman homered again. Sean Manaya was great again. The A's won, but Felix got a really wonderful send-off. It's strange to see him get that sort of send-off because he's only 33 years old and it feels like it's too soon for that sort of send-off, but obviously he's earned it. And he has also earned forthcoming Meg article, which I'm sure will be a great send-off too. I kind of think Felix will be back in the big leagues next year though, but probably not for Seattle. Also want to mention Daniel Palka. Meg and I discussed his horrendous start to the season, but since we discussed it, he has actually been pretty good. He is finishing strong. He hit two home runs on Thursday. Two entered the game with zero, so that's got to feel good. His WRC Plus on the season is up to seven. Yes, seven. That's not great but it was way in the negatives when we talked about it for the first time, so he will have some positive September memories to take into the long, cold winter. Now, Mike Miner. We mentioned the Pete Abraham tweet bashing the Rangers for behaving in such a manner. Didn't mention that Mike Miner replied to that tweet, quote, Ask me if I care, Pete. Then Abraham replied, congrats to you and CB on number 200, a reference to home plate umpire CB Buckner, who called strike three on the pitch after the pop-up. And it kind of looked like Buckner was in on this whole thing because it was not really in the strike zone, but hey, close enough. Now, Alex Cora criticized this too, not explicitly, but when he was asked about it, he said, I don't know, I'm just happy our guys are playing the game the right way. We're playing hard until the end. I'm adding the emphasis there, but it may have been there. Clearly, he was implying that the Rangers were not playing the game the right way. Now, we were wondering about that swinging at first pitches thing. Chris Woodward said the Red Sox weren't trying to win the game because they were swinging at first pitches, even though they hit a couple first pitch homers earlier in the game. So in the eighth inning, Miner had actually pitched a three-pitch inning, or as some say, a minimum inning. So that's what that was a reference to. Now, Woodward then said that the Red Sox were trying to keep Miner from striking anyone out by swinging at the first pitch. And Miner said the same thing. Miner said the Red Sox were trying to rob him of the 200th strikeout. He says, I knew what they were doing. They were laughing about it. Now, that's just inconceivable to me. We were surprised that the Rangers even knew or cared about this achievement. And now we're learning that the Red Sox were aware that Mike Miner was going for his 200th strikeout and they were trying to prevent him from getting it. Man, we talked about playing spoiler earlier in the episode. If you're playing spoiler by spoiling Mike Miner's 200th strikeout, that's sort of sad. They were trying to mess with me because they knew what I was trying to do, Miner said. I was kind of mad. Not mad, but I knew what they were doing. So Miner said he was aware of this because Lance Lynn had gotten to 200, I don't know, a little while ago. And he and Lynn are the second set of Rangers pitchers with 200 or more strikeouts in a single season after Nolan Ryan and Bobby Witt did it in 1990. So there was some awareness of this, and he says guys were talking about it. So it was known by the team. I guess they were doing the addition. The last thing is that we were wondering who coordinated this. Did Guzman do it on his own? And Miner owned up to this after the game. He said, I knew it was going to be a two-strike count if he dropped it, so I yelled at Guzzi to drop it. So Miner actually requested that Guzman drop the ball, and Guzman was credited with an error on the play. Granted, it's not like teams pay attention to errors or pay players based on errors anymore. I don't know, maybe in arbitration. But still, no one likes 
next to be told that they made an error. So Guzman made a sacrifice there. It's a little less uplifting because he did it at Miner's request instead of deciding to do it himself, but still a nice gesture. So that's that. Just a strange saga all around. What I still don't really get is that he did get the strikeout. It wasn't like Chris Owings singled or something and then he had to go back to the plate and hit again and then he struck out. He hit a foul pop-up, which is essentially an automatic out under most circumstances, and then he struck out, so Miner still had to record the strikeout. I mean, strikeouts are always going to be somewhat sensitive to the context. Some teams play with more or less foul territory or better or worse fielders, so I don't know. He still had to earn it. Sports are very strange. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks, including the two Patreon-only live streams that we will be doing during the playoffs next month. You've got to sign up for Patreon at the $10 level or higher to join us for those. Steve Wolkind, Mark Montgomery, Matthew Gardner, Jesse Coomer, and Jonathan Fabry. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg and Sam coming via email at podcast at fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. You can buy my book, The MVP Machine, How Baseball's New Nonconformists Are Using Data to Build Better Players. Your ratings and reviews for the book are appreciated too. We hope you have a wonderful weekend, the last weekend of regular season baseball. And we will be back early next week to discuss wild card games and division series and all the rest. Talk to you then. Let it fall down, let it fall down, let it all fall down. Let it fall down, let it fall down, let it all fall down. Keep hollering timber, timber. Hope it don't fall on me. I'm hollering timber, timber. Let it all fall down. Go on, let it fall down, let it fall down, let it all fall down. Let it fall down